0: Well, hi, everybody. It's the Week in the Tackle podcast. I'm Tom Rennie. Yes, you're welcome. Alongside me today is a star of Apple TV, a man who played for all the MLS clubs that didn't do so great during his time there, but he still looks impossibly young for his age. But when you play an entire career without sprinting, That's the way it goes. It is Mr. Brian Dunny Dunseth. How are you, mate? You're
1: right. I'm good. Just as a, I don't know, just as an asterisk to your uh, assertion and yet factual statement (laughs) that I played for a bunch of teams that were really bad in Major League Soccer, I would like to prove that at least there was a silver lining, Mm. that I did have trade value at the end of the season. So good, bad, eh. It's good you got some sort of value.
0: I've never been worth anything, so that's fine. <laughs> Nobody would have paid like a bag of peanuts for mm. me. So, you know, you've been worth what two chairs at well, times.
1: I-, I always say it was Comfy a trade. Ones, it was easy it was, boy a, recliners. It was a trade. It was me and a bent bicycle pump for somebody else and a bag of balls. So, you know, whatever. It was, it have was you always... ever been
0: traded for stuff? Like, there are some players that have been traded for stuff. Like, there was a story. Well, uh, of like a National League player that went to like Eastbourne from somewhere else and it was like a bag of balls and some new goalposts.
1: Yeah, no, I, well, it was, it was a little bit of money. It was like trade value. But it, the interesting thing was, for me, it would always be like, I, I think it was like the Jay Heaps trade for the New England Revolution. I went down to play for Ray Hudson, the Miami Fusion. Jay was like a meadow. What is it? Met Not Meadowland, me, Meadow. whatever, His Massachusetts. He was like a an icon in the Boston area. And it was... Brian Dunseth for Jay Heaps, and I think the trade will also include draft picks, Right, they got a way higher draft pick than what <laughs> Miami got. I think it was like literally, I think it was like a round different. I think it was like a first round pick and I was just like a second round pick. So whatever. Yeah. I got to, I got to play with Rocky Ray I, Hudson. He was my manager, man. I think it was a win-win situation. You got picked. You yeah. got picked. You know,
0: some of us are still waiting there against the wall, waiting for someone to put us in goal. So that's the way it goes. Pick me, guys. Pick <laughs> me. Why are you just snuffling down a quick cake? Yeah. Um, look, before we uh, get on with the main bit of the show, I want to talk about Man City being champions. We want to talk mm. about uh, Balogun joining uh, the US men's team after months of flirtation. We want to say goodbye to one or two players that had the perfect goodbye this weekend and maybe rag on Tottenham a bit as well of this time. Um, since we were last together... Yeah. West Ham made the Conference League final. Uh, yeah. We recorded the program uh, on Thursday last week before uh, the game. Um, and so, West Ham are going to be playing Fiorentina for those watching on YouTube. I have my Fiorentina shirt behind me.
1: Oh, um, the Purple People Eaters.
0: The Purple People Eaters, alongside yeah. the West Ham shirt, which they wore uh, in the Conference League semi final second leg last week when good old uh, Pablo Fornell scored that incredible, incredible winner. Um, and I want to mention this briefly because this shirt behind me, my parents got this. Uh, in Florence going to a game back in 2001, uh, which was the year Fiorentina last won a trophy. Mm. My dad, who is a monumental blagger, turned up to this game. He did, they didn't even know what the game was. They just knew there was a game. They went down there. They're the kind of people that hire a taxi driver to like drive them around for the day, wherever they go. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, there's a game on if you want to go. And they were like, oh, okay. And so somehow my dad flashed his uh, kind of West Ham membership card and they thought he was on the coaching staff at West Ham. So they I took tickets. They took my mum and dad through as if they were employees of West Ham United. So says my, my dad's story. I wasn't there. Didn't invite me. He flashed his season card and they got invited to the boardroom to have a meeting with some people at Fiorentina before the game. And it was a kind of um, a cup game and Gabriel Battistuta was playing for Fiorentina at the time, back in 2000, 2001, and they went to a boardroom, had a bizarre meeting over wine about like West Ham as a football club and who they might be interested in buying, watched the game from a box, met Battistuta after the game, and then got given a shirt or two, uh, two shirts, one for my nephew and one for me, as a gift. And this is the shirt they got as when they were posing as Harry Redknapp's, like, agent's. Uh, in 2001 at Fiorentina. So there you You
1: go. You know, Rennie, you've told a lot of great stories. That might be the best story. That did not involve you, but circumstantially did involve you. So, by the way, it's a great jersey. I I think it's one of the most iconic, recognizable jerseys in world football. But I I love the tie-in, by the way, because fast forward 23 23 seasons later, here we are, and you're heading to Prague, and you're going to have a disaster of travel ahead of you.
0: I mean, I'll I'll tell you about that in a second, but I texted my dad earlier and I was like, oh, can you just tell me the story of this Fiorentina shirt again? Like, I've had it for years. It's well worn. I used to wear it all the time. Um, And he was like, oh, I can't remember all of it now, but I do remember we met a player with a ponytail who played up front. I forget his name, Batty something. (laughs) 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 Which was just terrific. He was Uh like, he had a ponytail. I can't recall, but he played in a few World Cups. Anyway, he was a nice guy. So, yeah. excellent story. Perfection. I think he's kind of taking the piss a bit, but it was Shasta. Shasta. funny. Um, so, yes, I'm going to the game. So, I went out to watch the game on TV on uh, on uh, Thursday night during the Battle of Alkmaar. Mm. Uh, I met Nolsey at the weekend, by the way, our pal Nolsey, uh, who was windmilling in alongside the geezer in the green shirt at Alkmaar. And he was, he was literally – he got a standing ovation when he came up to his seat, which is kind of to the right of the press where I was sitting – um and then i shook his hand afterwards i literally had to wait in a queue to shake his hand not like a formal queue but ev- everyone wanted to do it uh, which yeah. was excellent um but basically i went out on thursday night to watch the game and then i was like right i've got to try and get a ticket but you were in the pub then so i couldn't sort it at 1am on the on the way home so i called up my friend i managed to get a ticket for the game really looking forward to going with me like right i've got to get from london to prague now no flights out of london on the day of the game from any airport No flights out of Manchester, no flights out of Liverpool, no flights out of Glasgow. There are no direct flights to Prague from any British airport on the Tuesday. The game is on the Wednesday. All I could do, I did get a London flight, but I've got to go into Munich. Got to wait in Munich for a few hours on Tuesday, then fly to Prague. Then on the Thursday after the game on Wednesday night, I've got to get up really early to get a 7 a.m. flight (laughs) out of Prague to Frankfurt. I wait in Frankfurt for the day, and then I get yeah. a flight back from Frankfurt back to London. So yeah. it's a three-day, hundreds-of-pound trip. Mm. There are no flights direct out of England to be booked to Prague. Um, There's a, an estimate I read this morning that nearly 30,000 West Ham fans are going to be going over to Prague to fill 4,500 seats uh, that are available. Fiorentina an incredibly well-supported club as well, so they will send... A big number two, I'm sure. And I'm hoping it's going to be a friendly and fun atmosphere because I've had my fill of getting punched in the face over the years. It's not fun. It's never been fun. And it's only funny if Nolsey does it too. Jazz! jazz! As opposed to uh, adult men. Oh, are well, the old jazz! I am the old Boom! Good luck, son. Uh, so, you know, I hope it's all going to be fun. I hope it's going to be good. But it's going to be, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very excited, Danny. I've got to tell you. Win so or lose.
1: The, the, you've got two scenarios. By the way, I don't feel bad for you for a 7 a.m. flight. Seven a.m flights like sleeping in for me nowadays when I'm heading back but from you're
0: whatever. you're you're a real early ride. You're, you're a trained rising. athlete. Yeah.
1: yeah. It my, my return from Colorado was uh was I think I got to the airport around four forty-five. Or forty five ish, um, but you're doing international. It's a little bit different. I know you don't have like TSA pre check in the clear, which I do. So it just kind of slide right through all yeah. that BS. We're not even um, in the European Union, mate. It's going to be difficult. Oh, it's it's so so difficult. So here, here two th- two scenarios happen. One, West Ham lose, you make that flight. Mm. Two, West Ham win, you are not making that flight. And then I, no. I, I have I have packing questions. Yeah, packing questions. It's such a short trip and. You lot are so notorious for challenging bag size and charging the extra seventy-five quid. It's an absolute desire <laughs> disaster. It's a travesty. It's such a joke. It's such a con. So, what air? You said British Airways? Are you flying, or what are you doing? Oh, Ryanair? Or um,
0: no, it's like Polish Air or something. It's not. Oh. It's not. It's not easy Jet or British Airways. It's like. yes they're reputable just not not english or british or american
1: (laughs) so what are you going to pack like are you just going to do a small little backpack with like i'm going to take a little backpack with me
0: uh well i'm going uh i don't want to give too much away here but i'm not going to i'm going to be in with the west ham fans i'm going to be in with the prawn sandwich brigade
1: so you gotta have a jacket
0: so i've got to be i've got to have a kind of smart cash blazer vibe i can't just turn up it i would i would i can't wear club colors or no no Don't. you're going to Wait, go black anyway, with but, uh, black
1: with black. I already yes. know what your look's going to look like. Yes. It's going to be yeah. black slack. Well, not even slack. So it'll be black like Lululemon stretchies. I was thinking have- about wearing my blue suit. No way. You're not going to wear a blue suit. I was thinking about wearing a blue suit. Cash summer blue suit. How, how? But you're going to go out afterwards. You're going to be on the bender if um, you win. If No,
0: I'm not going to go home, mate. I've got to get home. I've got but, things on. You say,
1: you say that, but then it's going to be like when you're walking around Aarhus in like 4 a.m. in Denmark after mm. your mate's wedding. And you were lost and it was like uh it was like yeah. an episode of ted lasso where coach beard was trying to make himself uh make his way back from wembley to yes life, for training life, next
0: do you know what life can be like that but i'm gonna make my flight and if not mm. there's no flights for four days so i guess we'll just see what happens
1: hey <laughs> i'm just i'm just telling you horsey we're gonna have an issue on that return when we have an opportunity to record week in the tackle and we're gonna find out that somehow tom rennie stumbled into a heroin den not a heroine den a heroine den full of my heroes full of my female heroes exactly um right that's to
0: come anyway we'll uh and we'll do something we'll do something from Prague for the show as well we'll record a little something we'll put out there um I want to move to the weekend's football Danny mm-hmm. uh, there's loads of stories I want to get to today um but I'd love your view on Manchester City and the reaction to them winning the title this weekend yeah Arsenal lost against Nottingham Forest so going into the Chelsea victory at the weekend Man City were already champions and I I I I don't want to do sovereign wealth fund too much today because, you know, people, I I will do it again. And we're going to do it a lot with Newcastle, I'm sure, moving forward. And we've got to try and find a way to regulate to stop it being Saudi Arabia against Qatar, against Abu Dhabi at the top of the Premier League. Maybe the horse has bolted or maybe we can still catch the second horse out of the traps. I don't Hmm. know. But it's been really interesting watching the TV and listening to the radio coverage compared to maybe some of the written press. Not everywhere. You know, there's a few kind of fluffers, but a lot of really interesting analysis too. Very much enjoyed uh, Miguel Delaney's piece in The Independent. If you are trying to get someone who writes better than me to try and explain my feelings on it, I would certainly recommend that article, which is on uh, our Twitter page and it's on mine as well if you want to try and find it. Um, but they've won the league and I watched this whole conversation between the Sky Sports pundits, uh, I think it was Jamie Redknapp, Michael Richards and one or two others talking about, you know, where does this team rank? And they were like, Michael Richards said they've got to be right up there in the top two teams ever in the history of English football when he's comparing them to 1999 Manchester United and the Invincibles and the Liverpool team of 82 to 84 that won the you know, multiple leagues and the European Cup as was well and, and, and things like that. And I remember 99 and the Invincibles and those teams even now, 20 years later, they are so revered and so mm. beloved, even by people that didn't support those teams. If you think of the Man United team of 1999, not only the way they won the Champions League final, but there was the whole, the peak of the class of 92. And it was the end of the first flush of Premier League cash. After that, other teams had Champions League money from finishing second, third and fourth, who could then compete with Man United, which they previously couldn't. Um, Then you go, of course, the Abramovich era that ended that entire thing. Uh, The Invincibles were kind of the backlash to what Man United had done during those early years of cash domination. Um, And of course, Thierry Henry and all this sort of stuff. That's Those teams I remember now vividly. Yeah. Man City have just won the league and they may well win a treble and nobody cares. Mm. And they're pushing this narrative here that this team are like those teams. And they're just not. They're just not because it feels like they're playing on a non- level playing field. I feel like watching this, it's what it's like when I speak to Spanish colleagues and they're like, oh, I support Real Betis, but also Barcelona. I support Valencia, but also Real Madrid because there's no point supporting your team with a great deal of passion because they're never going to win anything. So you're allowed to have a second team because the league is so skewed in the favor of the top two over the last 30 years, a generation that's just accepted that it happens. Manchester City, the way they are running their club so brilliantly in terms of yeah, they've got unlimited funds, and we'll find out how legal it is and within the rules of the game that they've channeled those funds in the future. Um, but they've done it to a degree where it's almost the perfect scenario for Pep Guardiola. But what we've got now is City kind of murdering the league. And I mentioned this on Twitter and on shows a lot, and people say things like, cry more. And I think, yeah, it's fine. You know, you're... Telling me to cry more. I'm lamenting the death of the Premier League. I'm lamenting the death of Mm. English football. And you're kind of smiling as the blade sinks in. You're telling me to cry more. And I will cry more because I'm crying on your behalf. Mm. You know, we need to find a way to stop this from happening. And people will say, oh, there's always been a dominant team. There has not been a team dominant in England backed by a country. And the reason they could go on these incredible runs at the end of the season is because they can make 88 changes to their starting 11 across 36 weeks, whereas Arsenal can make 38. Arsenal's replacement is Reese Nelson and City's replacement is Riyad Mahrez, right? The the resources for them are extraordinary. And with Guardiola there and the funneling of money and all the issues that are there, we will not catch them. We will not stop them. And in 10 years time, when City have won 14 and 15 leagues, it won't just be me crying more. It'll be all of us mm. until we can find a way to stop it. And I just feel like all this, oh, how good are they? And we had a little conversation with Darren Lewis in a couple of days on Twitter of the Mirror. and We were saying, look, it's not about how great they are. I'm saying how great they are. I'm saying it. Guardiola's a genius and maybe the greatest coach ever. The mm. team play extraordinary uh, football that we've never seen before. They're tactically creative and inventive and brilliant, but they're still murdering us. They're still murdering all of it, and we've got to try and stop it. And I feel like, Danny, the whole conversation about how great they are is not taking into account this full and really important context. These days aren't those days.
1: Yeah, I, I'll attack it from a slightly different angle. Uh, while I while I completely understand where you're coming from, and, and I take all those data points in due course, I think what we're seeing now is an evolution of ownership, right? And we, we've been calling... For the influx of clubs to be saved in the injection of cash and doing it a certain way. And as you do it a certain way, the haves or have nots are still the haves. I mean, listen, I know we're talking about countries, but we're also talking about extraordinary sums of money that are being leveraged through significant banks and income backers that are, and I'm looking right now at what's happening with Everton, um, the decision to sell to to certain groups. And I think, you know, from the individual. Where we've seen clubs like we'll use Everton for a second, Moshiri. We're looking at uh, the Glazer family. We're looking at Stan Kroenke and his son, and how that all kind of plays itself out. Let let's let's not mistake anything here. These are still billionaires, and they're they are still in. There's still the influence of significant amounts of money that are available, but it's different. It is different. Hmm. So I think through the evolution of the haves and have-nots, and and, and again, you go back in the reference points. Go back to '99. I can remember when Roy Keane was, what, the first 50,000-pound-a-week footballer, and the significance of, okay, what would the wages look like, Mm. How, how clubs could offer significant wages that broke this barrier of 10, 15, 20K a week, all of a sudden into 50 grand, how that could significantly sway individual players to leave their clubs because it was such a significant pay packet that could alter the future of them and their families. That was the first initial conversation. Then all of a sudden, it was not only just the European players and the European coaches and the European influence and the changing the name and the Champions League money, but then it was the ownership groups that were coming in. And I think what we didn't realize, and I'll go back to the Bramovich era, I think in real time, what we didn't realize was we were kind of starting to see what the future of the Premier League would look like. But again, we only we only thought about it from the complexity of individual owners with kind of the leverage of banks backing them. Now it's it's in a whole different conversation, right? Because we saw what PSG started to do. And the history with PSG, with Thiago Silva, with Zlatan Ivorimovic, with Edinson Cavani, and seeing kind of what the future looked like, albeit in a completely different league, right? The Farmers League. League, oh, okay, they dominate year after year, but still the ultimate goal was to win Champions League. The same things happened in Manchester City. Differently, though. Because now you're talking about significant sums of money with a purpose, with a direction, with an idea, with leadership, with a well-laid-out plan, with an ex- incredible ability to execute and to continue to build upon what they had done previously. And now, Tom, we're, we're looking at, the I think, again, the evolution of what this continued look mm-hmm. is going to be for the Premier League. And that is a nuclear arms race, to have the backing and the spend and see who can, quote unquote, compete. And again, they're investment pawns, right? Everything is a pawn to these global markets now that are willing and capable of investing in the highest profile league in the world, and that is the Premier League. So there's no way to stop it. The, the cat's out of the bag. Um, what- I don't know. I don't no, know but, if I agree with see, no way to but, stop it. Well, because there needs he, to
0: be a will to stop it, which yeah, there but, isn't. But
1: even but even the will to stop it, the the in in the the regulatory process of what we're doing here, we've been trying to do this right. We mm. we've been trying to see who's in charge, who's got the best idea, how do we go? But then also, by the way, the morality scale every three or four years really tips in one direction or the other. I just think when I say there's no way to stop it, my it, that falls into the question of. How do you regulate it? Who's in charge of the regulation? What's the mm. application of the regulation? Because by the way, we've been talking about financial fair play. Sorry, Tim. Mm. We've been talking about all this bullshit around transfer windows and, and suspension. Sorry, Tim. And at the end of the day, none of it matters. I it don't doesn't agree. even put a dent I disagree in completely. what these clubs are trying to do and what they're capable of doing. Because no. listen, it's, not, it's nothing. It's monopoly money to them. They get away with everything. Imagine, we'll They get away with everything. Imagine, Danny, what they would have done
0: if there was no regulation. Mm -hmm. The regulation is weak and not fit for purpose, and it doesn't go far enough, and it is not in any way protecting competition. Financial fair play is not Not protecting competition in France. It is certainly not protecting the Premier League. who thought they'd be protected by being this hyper-capitalist model. But all the uh, investment funds um, and all the hedge funds and all the kind of private financiers, all those guys, all those guys might be billionaires. They are paupers compared to a sovereign wealth fund. They are paupers compared to the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia coming in at Newcastle. They have no money. They are nothing. They are street beggars compared to the money that is coming in now. And... I still think that without that regulation in place now, the inequality that's grown and grown and grown and grown and grown, it'd be, we'd already be long lost. Right now, there is still a way to claw it back, but there needs to be a will to do it. There needs to be independent regulation. There needs to be someone actually looking out for the good of the game. At the moment, I don't think anyone is looking out for the good of the game. I think they're looking out for... um you know, the, the, how much money is being made for everyone. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's been the 30-year model of the Premier League. But, but back then, in those older days, there wasn't a country who could afford... You know, we spoke about transfers and how much praise there was for for, for the transfers Man City had done, the calibre and, and the signings they've made and how good they've been. But to Miguel Delaney's article, there's a great quote he put in there, which was, it's not that City always spend the most. And that's right. It isn't that. Correct. It's that there's no financial risk. The state has limitless funds. They have a safety net to make as many errors as they want. The fact they haven't made er- er- errors or that many doesn't matter yeah. because they've created a marketplace where Jack Grealish is worth 100 million pounds and Deckham Rice is worth 120 million pounds and Ake, bang average Bournemouth center half, is worth 50 million pounds. They've created that market, they've created the ecosystem. And then suddenly no one else can compete. So some company comes in to try and compete and they think they're competing for a bit. And then the Saudi investment fund or the Abu Dhabi investment fund go, double it. Should we just double it then? And then they just double it. And then we think, oh, no, wait, they've broken the regulations. And they say, well, no, they haven't. What regulations? Here's our 750 lawyers to say we haven't broken a regulation. What are you going to do about it? And they can't go to an independent arbiter. They go to the Premier League who let them do it anyway because there's no independent arbiter to do it. And so this is why i take taking it back to the weekend. They win the league. And I think people don't hate Man City. Hmm. I that think roll. people don't love Man City. I think they think nothing
1: of Man City. No, see, I, I would disagree on that. I, I, I would disagree. I, I think you can. I think we are at the point now where there is a majority of just football fans that don't necessarily have any skin in the game, that don't necessarily because i think we're we're in a weird point you you're you're like a you're like a unicorn um and, and i like kind of shudder as i say that you are you are a, a generation because of your locale where you grew up you have a singular team there is nothing else that you care about than your team but i can promise you being over here in the states and mm. speaking from more of a worldwide recognition that we we're we're starting to see something completely different. I'm a Manchester United fan, right? I like and I enjoy clubs from other countries and leagues. I can watch them. I'll tune in. They pique my imagination and I watch them for fun, but I'm still a Man United fan. Mm. But I'm different because I'm watching all my kids and all their friends. They're not team fans anymore. They're individual fans. They are falling in love with individual players and they have no loyalty to the club that they play for. They will buy the shirts and they'll rep the team and they'll support them. And guess what? The moment that the f***ing player is gone, sorry, Tim, I shouldn't have cursed right there. It slipped out. I apologize. They will follow that player to the next team. For example.
0: Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with that. That, That's a perfectly acceptable thing to do, but but, that shouldn't fall within the Premier League encouraging
1: that. No, 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 no. no, But what, what I'm trying to say is, you are now, you are now, we are now in a generation of football fans that they can displace all of the conversation with Man City on the backside. Right, wrong, or indifferent, they can displace it. And they can tune in and watch Kevin De Bruyne pull the strings. They can tune in and watch Erling Holland bag goals left and right. Mm. They can tune in and just enjoy the. Housery, Dunsethery, the dark arts, if you will. Sorry, Tim, it's really slipping today, of Rodri and the way that he breaks up plays. They can watch Man City play and enjoy the way that they can systematically take a team apart with that type of possession and create those goal-scoring opportunities and say, man, they are so fun to watch. And separate the two. And that and that's this is the complexity of the conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're allowed to have a cognitive dissonance about how a club is, is, is good or not. Like if I watched a game, I don't know, I know from another sport and I didn't know anything about it, I could be, oh, this good, this guy's really good at it. But at some point they've got to have someone to play. And at some point, you know, Spanish football holds no interest in me because Barcelona or Real Madrid might win it. Mm-hmm. That's not interesting. That's in no way interesting. It'll never be interesting. And to a group of people, sure. Sure, a teenager in Atlanta might be like, I'm a fan of Vinicius Junior, and so I'm going to want him to win. And when he goes to Chelsea, he'll follow him there. There's nothing wrong with that. And I just just think that's a separate conversation. The conversation Mm -hmm. is, we've got to encourage competition in these leagues. I don't buy that every single new follower of soccer only follows individual players. I still think teams are massively important. Competitions are massively important, but they won't be important anymore when there's only one team that can win it. And what we should be doing is encouraging a concept and league where at least there is, if not a level playing field, then a possibility of competition. And when a team is winning at five of six, and to beat them, you've got to get 99 points or whatever Liverpool got that year to finally win the league. They came second on, what, 98 points. It shouldn't be like that. And it shouldn't be that you can afford to go to Leeds United and say, give us Calvin Phillips. Yeah, it. Give us him. Sorry, Tim. And he plays his first start in game week 37 of the season and leads get relegated and they can afford to have that massive, monumental £60 million risk. And there is no possible um, damage done to Man City because of that. They can allow Jack Grealish at £100 million to sit on a bench for a year before he comes good for them. Well, the issue is, that's yeah, it's great for Jack Grealish, I suppose, after a year, but no other team could possibly afford a £100 million waste of space for 14 months. Could Arsenal afford Pepe? Could Man United afford Jadon Sancho? They couldn't. And these are the elite of the elite level clubs with the huge billionaire backing, but their billionaire money is a coin in a fountain compared to the Saudi Arabians and the Abu Dhabians who own the f***ing lake that the fountain is in that was torturous that analogy I know but I think you need to apologise
1: you need to apologise You oh no, sorry up. Tim yeah sorry Tim it annoys me well, but that's it, where
0: I think the indifference comes yeah. from there was a general indifference and I am a West Ham fan and I want my team to win and everything else is broadly nothing to me but also I love the Man United 99 team I love the Invincibles I love the the entertainers at Newcastle United uh, I love the current Brighton and Hove Albion team who I have yeah. paid to go and watch Um, the the England team that got to the European Championship final. You know, there's loads of teams I can think of that I loved them. Um, But this Man City team, it ain't going to be one of them, even Mm. though Kevin De Bruyne might be my favourite player I've ever gone to see, to your point from earlier on. But wouldn't it be better to see him, I don't know, challenged a bit more? Do I have to wait for the golden goose to stop laying eggs before people realize that I'm right on this? I don't I don't know. Maybe I don't.
1: Yeah, I, I I just think as a subtopic, there there's there's a I think there's a wider audience that likes watching this situation play. Or sorry, sorry, doesn't like, enjoys watching yeah. the complete circus and disaster that is Chelsea football club since the departure of Roman Abramovich for all the obvious reasons. And watching how Todd, Todd Bowley has come in and displaced everyone, and thought that he could just splash the cash and throw the money at it, and that would have the that would that would solve all the solutions. Uh, checks, notes, yes. Twelfth position, minus six goal differential, just forty-three points. Uh, who has? Oh yeah, Crystal Palace, Fulham, Brentford, Aston Villa, and our beloved Brighton and Hove Albion, who is everybody's favorite second team at this point.
0: Let's talk about the relegation battle when the Premier League goes down yeah. to the final day. I, yep. I love your view on this, Danny. Leicester City, they went to Newcastle on Monday. Mm. Victory over Newcastle, and they're out of the relegation zone. A draw takes it to the final day. But on the final day, Everton had Bournemouth at home. Huge favourites to win it. Um, I know Newcastle away is a massive, massive task and a massive undertaking. But they went into the game to try and get a draw, which they did, which means they have to win on the final day and Bournemouth have to get something at Everton which is incredibly unlikely. Mm-hmm. What did you make to Dean Smith
1: going into a must-win game to not lose? It's the complexity of the end of the season challenge. And and I would always, you know, we we've we've done this the last couple of seasons where we get in the final eight match days and we have this unique conversation and we do it on grumpy pundits on Fridays where we get around the grounds and we make our official picks you're doing terrible this season. So um, and and we we try I mean on on any part of the normal season you say Newcastle wins this game with the way Leicester City's game season is gone 3-0, 3-1, 4-1 maybe. Um just because that's the season. But then there's the pride element, right? Is the, the the pride and and I keep saying having been a part of a relegation battle in my career over in Europe and Sweden. Um, it's different when you're a local player. It's a different when you're a local lad. It's a difference when you and your family live in the locale. If you've come in from the outside and we had Russian players, we had uh, players from Finland, we had players from England, we had players from Bosnia and Serbia, we had American players, we had African players, it just hits differently because we know our career will move on. If you are relegated your career... I always use the Shakiri incident, Stoke City. Little pop tart staring out in the distance. Hmm. Just just looking out. Yeah. Okay. Well, off to Liverpool. 12 million pounds. Cash in. Like, there's no punishment for relegation. We we do the thing where we're like, oh, shame, shame, shame. We ring the bell. They were relegated. The players don't care. Hmm. I mean, they care, but they don't care. They care, but life moves on. They care, but potential better opportunities happen. Um so I give there's there's it's such a unique dynamic, and I know so many players, ex players, have talked about what it's like being in these battles and what the the momentum looks like, what the the monumental tasks feels like, and it just comes down to gray area. It's it's less about tactics, it's less about you know all, all all the different things that happen. It's sometimes just all up here. It's less the physicality of the game. It's just the focus. It's the gray area. So. In matches like this, credit, I'll just say, subsequently gives Manchester United the opportunity to clinch third place because they did not win. So yay, yay for me. Uh, good job, <laughs> Leicester City. Uh, on the flip side, um, they're comfortable. They've booked their spot in Champions League. And for Leicester City, it's now come down to the final. I don't have a problem with teams playing not to lose. Mm. And I think with the city, the, the season that Leicester City has had, I think dropping James Madison and... and you know, making adjustments and keeping the game in front of them and being difficult to play against. It's everything we've heard from Big Sam and Leeds United since he took over three matches ago. So not surprised. Give him credit. Put the point in the back pocket. In games like this, you, you just want to give yourself an opportunity to survive. And I think that's exactly what we saw from Dean Smith in Leicester City. So credit to him.
0: Um, yes and no. I I always go back to Alan Kerbishley here. Um. When Alan Kerbishley was West Ham manager during the great escape season in 06, 07, Carlos Tevez and all that sort of stuff. And he came in and West Ham lost a game 4-3 against Tottenham. And they were 3-3 in the last minute and they sent everyone up to try and score a corner. They didn't. And this guy, Paul Stolteri, who Tottenham fans always lord over me. Yeah, exactly. One of those guys that... You know, is a quiz question answer uh, that always makes kind of West Ham fans grimace. And he got at the other end and scored this 92nd minute winner or something like that very late. And they said to Kirby afterwards, why did, you, why did you send everyone forward? You had a point there. Hmm. And he said, in the relegation battle, wins matter. Hmm. Three pointers matter. A draw does nothing for us here. We've got to try and win a game in the next three. If it's not this one, it's got to be the next one. Three draws isn't going to get us there because we need to get something else after a win. A win has to come first. Um, And it just seemed a very kind of gutless way of going about it for Leicester City, considering they remain two points behind and Everton have a really favourable game against Bournemouth, plus goal difference favours Leicester City. So in the end, the way it is, it doesn't make a great deal of difference. The win is what would have mattered, and they didn't get it. Um,
1: Do you think think structurally he's thinking, we just saw West Ham beat Leeds United 3-1. They're going to be in a situation where their mind is going to be in Prague. We've got the opportunity to play them at home. Maybe they let their foot off the pedal. That could be a winnable game because they already won because the schedule made it so they could watch the weekend results, then Mm. prepare adequately in whatever formula they want. I just wonder if Dean Smith would admit to something like that.
0: I mean, I wonder if the game plan changed when Yerry Mina scored that 100th-minute equaliser. Yes, for sure. Um, As soon as that happened, he thought, right, a point's now a good result, whereas if we go there and get nothing, it wouldn't have mattered so much. I mean, potentially that's part of the thinking, but um, it it just seemed odd, and maybe in previous games, the Fulham game, for example, when he went all-out attack, if he'd have gone all-out defence two games ago, you know, he seems to be completely changing the, the way the team plays out of pure panic and desperation game by game. And West Ham have got like a ten or eleven day break before the game again against um, Fiorentina in Prague, so they'll they'll play their strongest team. I mean, yeah, you're, you're concerned about injury and whatnot, but I mean, you'd fancy Leicester in that game, but you fancy Everton anyway. Um, but Leeds to go to, to to talk about them briefly. I went to the game at the weekend, as you know, and what was really fascinating, Danny, and I'd love your view on this is that first twenty minutes, West Ham looked kind of dishevelled, low hmm. energy, played on Thursday, you know. Deacon Rice maybe had his first ever hangover. I don't know. (laughs) And then they scored this goal from your boy McKenny. by the way. He's basically just Rory Delap. Like, what's happened to him? Get out of Leeds as soon as humanly possible. They have turned who is supposed to be the kind of box-to-box engine room of the U.S. men's national team into Stoke City's token throw-in taker from 25 years ago. Like, it just...
1: Wait, you're slagging him off for having a great throw-in?
0: But he has no other function. All uh, they do is try and get a throw and he takes a throw in. Like he's just got, they've got it, no it, plan for him. Wouldn't that, of yeah.
1: Wouldn't that be Big Sam? Wouldn't that be Big Sam?
0: Yeah. I mean, because he looked uh, at this guy and gone, like, um, we've got the fat bloke in midfield. What do we do with him? We'll just get him to take the throw ins. He's got to have a bit of meat behind him, right? And, and that's could,
1: it. Couldn't disagree with you more.
0: Yeah. That's that's it. He uh, hasn't he hasn't got any other role in the team. Oh. And it's sort of, it's just bizarre. I thought he was meant to be like, great player. He's Roy lap. But what was interesting was from McKenny's long throw, his only asset. Uh, great volley uh, from Rodrigo to score wild celebrations. Everyone's happy. Adidas is bantering with the fourth official guy uh, about that five pound note, which to be fair, was very funny. Um, And they just sort of wilted and collapsed. I know West Ham played well with confidence for the first time in a long time, safe for the first time in a long time, huge success on Thursday. I get that. They they play with the freedom, but there was something done about the fact they took the lead. It was like a bit like Leicester on Monday. They never planned to have the lead, and when they got the lead, they were like, "Oh, we've we got we've got seventy minutes to navigate here. What yeah. do we do?" And from that point, they totally crumbled. I mean, what did you make to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunately been the calling card of this Leeds United side all season long. It's um, they 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 have the confidence wobbles, and they've had the confidence wobbles for a long, long time or long portion of this season. Because when you look at the players and the names on the back of the jerseys, you think this is a team that compete. This is a team that is probably a mid-table team, um, a team that should be secure and should be building towards the future after the next couple of years. Um, and, and the interesting story behind the scenes of, of what the 49ers group looks like and what potentially the future holds. So, I mean, I, I listen, I, I know we disagree about Wes McKinney. I, I think we're somewhat in the neighborhood on Tyler Adams. Um, but he's been a big loss. I just think they've they've lost a certain engine room type of player. I know we talk about Calvin mm. Phillips and that's that was a big decision to allow him to leave. But how do you turn down that type of windfall? But then how, again, do you reinvest that in the squad? And then again, how do you give a manager the time to allow players to bet in in a January window when you sack him immediately after three days? Mm. I, I just think there's been, there's been so much panic surrounding Leeds United this season in fear of being relegated, that they're going to be relegated. That's what it feels like. It just feels like, and it's, I I don't want to say the rot set in, but the panic is set in and it's so deep lying right now that it's hard for them to get out of their own way. And, and I've been, again, I've been on some teams, Tom, I can tell you what, what it feels like. It's, I can remember the very first season at Real Salt Lake with Eddie Pope, us international played what three world cups. Mm. We just couldn't win a game. And he and I were center back partners. I was on the left. He was to the right in this two center backs. And every single game we come up, fist bump, let's do our job. That was it. Let's do our job. Let's simplify the game. Let's do our job. And then if we can, we'll raise everybody up around us, or at least we'll try. But the moment you gave up that first goal, we look at each other like, here we go again. Mm. Like, And by the way, what also happens, even when you get a lead, you kind of look at each other and go, Pff, I don't know, man. I don't don't know if this group can hold it. So I think right now, again, we talk about gray area. I think there's just a lot up there right now for Leeds United. Um,
0: Final day of the season, this coming Sunday, um, all three teams going down in the Premier League this year will have been in the league last season. All three newly promoted sides are staying up. Uh, No time for it now because I want to get to some other things, but I will just briefly mention um, Morgan Gibbs-White. Uh, I won't do an apology because I don't believe in apologies. And I thought he was pretty useless before. And I think he wasn't amazing in the premier league. Um, I mean, he started to look like George Michael and he certainly is thrilling as the, uh, the first George Michael album and all the big singles by Wham. Terrific. Terrific. You know, Mm. where's the earring looks great. Um, And some of the touches and the technique and the driving of Nottingham Forest top player really like him. Not sure he's worth 42 million, but a very good player. Um, Let me ask you about Flo Balogun um, has chosen the U.S. men's national team since we last spoke. I think he's now on 20 plus goals in Liga for this season, being linked with a move away from Arsenal because he goes back there this summer, probably as their third choice centre forward. And I think he probably feels like he should be doing better than that. Um, Danny, your thoughts on Balogun? We knew it was going to happen, but it now being confirmed that he's a U.S. men's national team player. And how would you like to see the next maybe six months to a year of his career develop?
1: Yeah, listen, I I know that we had a little bit of banter back in, what was it, March uh, when I got done with the games down in Orlando and he was down in Orlando and he was obviously uh, batting his eyes at U.S. soccer and U.S. soccer was batting his eyes back at him. I think what people also need to say or understand is not only was he born in the United States, but he'd already played with the U.S. under 18s at a tournament. So he'd already had a, a cup of tea with the U.S. system, albeit not with the men's national team played for the England U21s. The difference in the complexity of this for us is, and I'm saying us as U.S. soccer, as a U.S. soccer nation, it's the most important position that we never have had an answer for for a long, long time. Since Josie Altidore, since Brian McBride, it's it's been it been a, a four, I'd say a, a six to eight year gap where we haven't had a legitimate goal scorer. And we've had a bunch of li- little hype players. You know, we've talked about Ricardo Pepe and we've talked about Josh Sargent and we've talked about Jesus Ferreira and we've talked about who could essentially play that number the, the Haji right at the World Cup. Um, we 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 just didn't have a guy. And I think that's what's so exciting, is because you see a, a, a young man, 21 years of age, come through the Arsenal Academy. You know, he he's went on loan last year at Middlesbrough. This year he's gone or however you guys pronounce it. How did you how did you lose? Ross, yeah, I would say I just say Ren, yeah, Ross. I think Ren is Ren's, but Ross, yeah, uh, Ross. And to to score as many goals as Laton did in his debut season in France is just kind of a it's a marker for us to celebrate. And again, I know for you guys, he was nothing more than a potential product in the system. Your attacking players and the attacking players that we see are are pretty extraordinary. But for us, this is a guy that's a plug and play. He's an immediate plug and play because he runs the lines different than anyone else that we have. He's scoring goals in a different country, in a different language, and he's got all of these different player profiles and these variables that match what I think the United States looks like. You talk about Pulisic, you talk about Gio Reyna, you talk about Timothy Way, you talk about uh, you know uh, Eunice Musa, you talk about Weston McKinney, you talk about Tyler Adams, you talk about all of these different pieces in the midfield and the attacking phase of play he fits them perfectly. He's got all of those dynamics that would fit this group really, really well. Plus he plugs into the same style and listen, he, he's he got friends on the team. He's got, he's got a group that he's already been in contact with. And I think for me, what it really comes down to, and because we're a dual nation, you guys are similar, um, but it's always, you know, like we're kind of like quote unquote second choice. And I think the difference is England's always premier choice. It's number one choice. It's primary choice. If players go and play with different countries, it's usually their birthright ability to then go play for them should they be not good enough. I get that Gareth Southgate didn't touch him. I get the Gareth Southgate said, we don't, we don't give charity call-ups. When they're ready, we'll call them up, blah, 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 blah. It's a different group. It's a different system. It's a different dynamic. So I'm extremely, extremely excited. You can tell by the way I'm rambling on about this. Um, I was I was down a part of the broadcast schedule when this was kind of happening in Orlando. So to see this get over the line and to see him kind of talk, listen, it's about what I want to be a part of. It's the group I want to be a part of, my ties to the United States. I feel this. That's what every U.S. men's national team fan wants to hear. It's not, hey, I'm here because I didn't get called into England. It's here, I want to be a part of that. Where the truth lies in that is somewhere probably in the middle. But -hmm. the reality is, He's set to go. And by the way, his first competitive game is going to be against our most hated rival, Mexico, in the Nations League semifinal in Vegas in a month's time. I, for one, can't be any more excited about what the possibility and the potential looks like. Now, if we could just get a manager. That's all I ask for. That'd be nice. Um, quick
0: question on that as, as a follow-up. He calls you up. You, you speak to him in yeah. the game uh, against Mexico in the Summer of the Nations League. And he says, I've oh, done so from the week in the tackle podcast. Good to see you. How, how much do you love Liberace? <laughs> and you have the whole conversation about the hits of Liberace and we move yeah. on. And you, he says, well, what, do you, what, what do you advise? What do you advise for my career in terms of, look, he isn't going to stay at Ria. That That isn't going to happen, right? He isn't going to stay in Liga. I don't think. I don't think they could afford to pay the wages of what his new profile would be. I think if that happened, he'd go back to Arsenal. We'd sign a bumper contract. Then he'd go back there. That's the realistic way that happens. I think that's probably not going to happen. I don't think Arsenal are going to keep him. I think they've already got Nketiah and Jesus. And I think that, has he done enough to displace either of those two players in the Arsenal squad? I don't think so. I mean, I'm here to be proved wrong, but from what I've been able to see, I don't think so. And I know that D'Arteta rates in as number two quite highly. And Jesus is Jesus. So there's going to be a move. Is it upper level, mid-level Premier League? Is it further up the league table? Is it, to Germany to Hmm. Spain I mean there's going to be a lot of clubs there's going to be a lot of options yeah what sort of level at least of club if not a club in particular would you recommend
1: yeah I'm only saying this because I saw the link and I think it makes perfect sense because of the age of the two strikers that are at the club currently Charlie Stilitano and Tony Miola's AC Milan um I think if you look what has happened with Rafael Leal if you look what's happened with Brahim Diaz I think it's 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 really a perfect opportunity because you know you think about Olivier Giroud you think about Zlatan Ibrahimovic it's it's two options that he can kind of slide in underneath and acclimate and adapt and I think the size of the club Champions League football all of those things check um, so I think that would be amazing for a player of his ability um, I know he's he's going to be one of these players like Tammy Abraham um, like Fikar Tamori like Chris Smalling where you're going to say, yeah, my, yeah, but it doesn't really matter how well he does because it's still not the Premier League. That's always going to be a narrative that is going to surround him. But what I like, this is just me, and this is more of a, a personal experience, lifestyle, cultural, outside of the footballing world. I love when kids adapt. I love mm. when kids choose the path less traveled. I love when players put themselves in uncomfortable situations and go to countries that it is not their first language. Because I think something happens. I think there's a maturity level that happens. Um, and and I think when you adapt the way he's adapted, and I know people, you know, poo-poo or, or stick their nose up about the Farmers League and League uh, um, I still think everything that he's done this year, we shouldn't be discounting just because it's in, in League Uh. I think what we should be doing is celebrating what this young man has chosen to do because he could have turned down. Even though the loan option comes up, he could have turned it down and said, "Nah, not for me, man. I'd rather go back to the championship. I'd rather go to you know stay at wherever at Middlesbrough. I'd rather go to Burnley. I'd rather go." He could have done that. Um, so I, I think as a as a, as an adult, he made a really strong adult decision. But I'm 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 intrigued to see where he does go next because I think he's probably popped up on a lot of databases um, across all of the sporting networks around the world to signify that maybe he could be the perfect fit uh, for whatever respective club and respective league. But I, I'm intrigued to see what the valuation is from Arsenal because they will most certainly try to capitalize, raise funds, and build their roster um, to be much better than the one that fell apart near the end of the season. Wouldn't it be nice if he made the move to the Bono disappointment, and you and I could
0: watch a game together where well, we're both delighted the West Ham number nine scored a goal. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be a nice feeling? Yeah. 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 Let's make it happen. Maybe. Let's make it happen. Put a call in. Um, we got loads of he's just that's uh Dunny's response basically saying no, he can do better than that. And he's probably right. <laughs> um, listen, there's loads of stories left, but we 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 don't go too long on this program. We like to bring it in under an hour because you know, you've got things on. That's about your mm. commute. Um, so the the story we're gonna pick to, to cover as our final story today is one that It's a a horrible story. And it's one of those stories that there's not a great deal we can add to uh, coming from both positions of immense white privilege in the countries that we live in. But it is worth uh, putting a comment in, I think, here that police in Spain have detained three people in connection with racist abuse, directed at Vinicius Junior, the Real Madrid footballer, uh, during the match on Sunday against Valencia. The three are aged between 18 and 21, which is incredibly depressing. Um, It's all depressing, but uh, young individuals, uh, you know, I don't know, bums me out. the incident against Valencia at the weekend has sparked massive outrage in Spain and Brazil and around the world from a lot of people, not kind of La Liga or the authorities in Spain, but individuals at least, uh, Luis Rubiales and Javier Tabas, I don't think have come out of this particular situation. Well, Rubiales is the head of the football federation the, the La Liga president uh, is Javier Tabas. Um, I, I, you know, i have been aware of the story, obviously Danny and uh, you know, racism is, is a boring, Um, <laughs> but we'd seen the the effigy being hung of of Vinicius Jr at the Athletic game. Yeah. That was like September, you yeah. know. Yep. Um Vinny Jr put out a video on his Twitter page of the of a, like nine times this season where he has been evidently and obviously racially abused in games. Um the weekend he he quite literally sort of stopped the game and said it's that person, that individual. Can we do something about this individual? Um, that's being and, overtly and, and still racist, somehow got you. sent off,
1: and still somehow got sent off. The yeah, I, I'm 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 boiling right now. Sorry, I mean, mean so I'm just
0: laying it out for the people that haven't seen the story, yeah. and then we'll obviously get your your whole thing on it. Um, yeah. But look, we're in a situation now where um, Vinicius Junior has basically said that. Spain to outsiders to people in Brazil as a racist company. The Brazilian president Lula has come out yep. and basically stood in solidarity with, with uh, Vinicius Junior. We would certainly stand in that position as well, uh, Danny. Uh, yeah, give us your, your thoughts on this and just what on earth is going on and what on earth happens next?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's my my blood is boiling watching this and I and I couldn't believe what I was seeing at the weekend. Um, again, coming from a place of white privilege, just and I know I can I can never verbally weave the web that needs to be said here publicly, but I do think that you and I spoke about it before the start of the show. And as much as we don't want to talk about, we need to talk about it because we need to continue to shine the light on what's happening to Vinicius Jr. Um, Because we can say it's uncalled for, it's despicable, it's disgusting, and it won't even come close to what we're watching in real time and how this young man who's done nothing wrong other than be Mm. a brilliant footballer, Be a brilliant footballer, has been put in a situation where literally everywhere that he's going right now, he has to be acutely aware of what's happening around him. That he is not thinking about football, not thinking about playing for Real Madrid, but is thinking about what the potential looks like, what he what he potentially has to do. Just the psychological side of walking into a stadium and being like, probably going to happen, because that's where it's gotten. That's where it's gotten, And, and. and listen, we're talking about a cultural thing, something that is completely different. I was just in Barcelona for the seven weeks over Christmas, and I, I am, I am, I am naive, but I am not naive enough to understand that culturally things are completely different in different countries. What is not acceptable right now in the United States is acceptable in different places. What is acceptable in different places is not acceptable in the United States. The, the verbiage, the description, the language that we use, the translation, the slang, all of this is different. And there, there, there's a difference for me when utilizing words. The language culture and and, and the cultural bar- barrier that we deal with, I was sitting in the stadium and I was walking around the city uh with my sons and there was certain language used. And my my boys were like, Oh, you can't say that. And I said, Well, it's different here. We have to understand that culturally there are things that are different. And what you can say in different countries is okay by the standard of the culture and is not okay by where we grow up. So we had this really in deep in depth conversation. And there were different words used. And for example, here the P word when goalkeepers take the goal kick that's used kind of predominantly here in the United States you shut that down immediately. Not There's a no-go, no-fly zone. We dealt with it US-Mexico in Phoenix. There was actually something sent out by US Soccer. We as a broadcaster with TNT and Turner were prepared for the potential of the game to be delayed because of the potential of that word to be used. That word was used really frequently in the Camp new, and that was towards the referee, Mateus Lajuz, upon his return from the World Cup. After Messi basically said he was the worst referee ever in the history of the game, um, so I can understand the complexity. But there's maliciousness. The, these words are are right now they they are being utilized and weaponized towards Vinicius Junior. And that for me is it's it's not only unacceptable, but it, it the the right it, is it disappointing? is it disgusting is it devastating i think all of those three fit the description of what's happening and until until something is done and the accountability is across the board from us as fans walking into the stadium purchasing tickets putting down our hard-earned money and recognizing that you cannot weaponize words towards athletes that's just the starting that that's just the starting programming um, I don't, I don't think we make a dent into what's happening. And I, and I think ultimately what will happen, and, and I'm going to hate to see this for Real Madrid fans, is there's going to come a point where it's not about the football. It's not about the club. It's about Vinicius Jr., an extraordinarily talented young man who does not deserve any of this, pulling up stakes and saying, you know what? I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this anymore. And just walking away being put in a situation where he has to walk away from the game in Spain to just live a correct life, live a, live a norm and decent li- normal and decent life that does not include him being subjected to this abhorrent, disgusting behavior that we've seen him subjected to this season.
0: I mean, it does sort of feel like, with all the the allegations there have been this year and the proven cases as well, from just watching the video of it and, and seeing the things that, that Vinicius Jr. put on his Twitter page, it's incredible really that, that it's sort of taken, it's happened again and again and again and again and again for it to become what happened this weekend. And I, I'd read, I mean, I again, I always say this to our listeners, I don't know enough about kind of other countries, other leagues, I learn it in conversation with guests we have on our serious XMFC shows. But La Liga have no power to close stadiums and can only report racism to the authorities. Hmm. So that whole there has been a huge and some of the videos he's put out. I mean, it genuinely is. Just go, to, I mean, go to
1: his Instagram page. Yeah, yeah just go to his Instagram page.
0: I feel like shocking doesn't quite cover it, but I wasn't no. quite prepared to watch it. And I take your point completely on the cultural differences on this word, on that, one or the other. Absolutely. Um,
1: but the, the, he, the, those words are being weaponized towards him yeah absolutely. they, they yeah. The, the words that are being used in the manner in which they are verbalizing them the the people that are choosing to use those words know exactly what they're doing and that's the that's that's the scariest part for me mm. because you can call there's a lot of names that you can call athletes and and I've been called a ton of names. Sometimes yes. I even giggle at some of the names, but when you are utilizing their race against them, that that's to me. It's my. I can't wrap my head around this. Mm. I cannot wrap my head around utilizing the the color of someone's skin against them and weaponizing it against them over and over and over. And to those that play, to Javier Tebas and La Liga. To Luis Rubiales and the Spanish Footballing Federation, to whoever runs, and I don't I apologize, I don't know the the verbiage for their refereeing organization, but even to the VAR who chose not to show Vinicius Jr. being chokeholded from behind, only showing his reaction afterwards in a moment of pure despair as to what's happening on the field. Uh, he's been let down. He's been let down by everybody around him, with the exclusion of Real Madrid Football Club, Carlo Ancelotti, and the the support system that he has. And, and and I applaud Yunus Musa for coming out publicly to to in speaking to his own fan base, saying that if you are basically weaponizing this word and ca- calling him, I don't even want to say what he said. If you are doing that, you're doing it to me. You're doing it to me as well this this is what we're trying to stamp out we've been talking about stamping out racism on the field we've been talking about for years oh look disgusting behavior look what's happening in italy oh disgusting behavior look what happened with 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 hungary uh, with their national team stadium we've been talking, but why haven't we been shining the light on what's been happening and i think now we're starting to by having these really uncomfortable situations but as you can hear in my voice like I get infuriated, infuriated watching this happen. And I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone. And I know nothing will come of this conversation, but at least if we can continue the conversation and continue to shine the light on how despicable this situation is that Vinicius Jr. is dealing with, hopefully that is part of the momentum that builds to some type of solution. And if it's not an immediate solution, hopefully there is a long-term solution that where all the pressure that continues to build on what is happening right now that at least we're trying to play our part in this conversation
0: we're out of time on today's program which is fitting because the other topic i really wanted to do today was the fact they added 10 minutes of additional time in every single game but we aren't going to be able to cover that on today's program we may well get to it on friday's predicts the weekend the final predicts the weekend of this season Uh, this has been the week in the tackle podcast that is Brian Dunseth I am Tom Rennie Tim Horsey has the arduous job of producing this program and we'll see you next time